If you uh, don't have a Bible, please raise your hand. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. Ushers will be glad to give you a Bible. Um, you can keep it if you don't have one. Borrow it if you do. Uh, Luke chapter 16. We'll be picking up uh, with uh, verse 14. If you're here last week, we jumped into the 16th chapter. Uh, if you're visiting, we go verse by verse uh, through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Luke on Sundays. We'll be back in Ezekiel in the fall. Wasn't Wednesday night a great time of testimony hearing how uh, Shoba and Trevor both came to know the Lord? Uh, we'll have a couple more testimonies this Wednesday. If you weren't here, you're going to be blessed. Uh, the next couple of Wednesdays, we'll continue to have testimonies from your brothers and sisters. I'm encouraged when I hear how people came to know the Lord. It reminds me that people that I meet are close and I don't even know it. Uh, and so we need to continue to just uh, not worry about convincing people of truth, just presenting people with truth. Well, we're going to pick up where we left off in Luke chapter 16, just going to be reading five verses, verses 14 through 18, Luke chapter 16. Starting with verse 14, now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would just preside over the teaching of your word, and we would hear from you, that our ears would be open, that our hearts would be open, that our, uh, Lord, our minds, you would just remove any distractions, that we'd hear from you and you alone, and that we would all, Lord, leave here different, closer to you than we came in. We ask this in your name. Amen. As I mentioned last week, if you break Luke chapter 16 into three sections, which is the case, and I'm sure most of your Bibles, Jesus addresses the perils of trusting or lusting after money in all three sections. Each of the sections here in Luke, Jesus addresses uh, this issue of money. We have in verses 1 through 13, which we looked at last week, uh, a parable with the accompanying challenge. Then, as we're examining here this morning, in verses 14 through 18, uh, it's a direct rebuke. It's a direct rebuke, and it's also a commentary, if you will, by Jesus on the law and the kingdom of God. Not a long, deep commentary, but nevertheless, a commentary on the law and the kingdom of God. And then it's followed, which we'll look at next week, verses 19 through 31, it's followed by an account not a parable. When we get to next week, next week is actually not a parable. Some people think that it is. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the manifestations of a parable in a number of ways that we'll look at next week. But uh, then you have, in verses 19 through 30, 31, you have this account of two men whose afterlife is every bit as different uh, as their lives on earth. So we have one powerful chapter that causes anyone who actually reads it with an open heart and a soft heart 
it really will cause anybody to, stake, uh, to take stock what it is we're living for. What is the true passion of our life? What's the anchor of our life? Is it temporal, you know, things we can touch or feel, or is it eternal? If you're taking notes, I've titled our study in God's Word this morning, Two Immovable Truths. Two Immovable Truths. It's kind of like the sun and the moon. The sun and the moon are there whether we can see them or not, correct? On a cloudy day, they're still there. When we pass away, they're still there. Before we were born, they're still there, right? They're there whether you see them or not, whether you feel the heat of the sun, whether you see the light of the moon, they're there. They're immovable. There's nothing mankind can do. God can move them, but no one else can. Two immovable truths. The two truths that we're looking at are the law and the gospel. And we'll contrast these two truths. And they're different, because they have a different, a different work, if you will, from the Lord. They're different, but they're complementary to one another in the work that God is doing in the world, in the hearts of mankind. In these brief five verses, what we want to do is unpack these. It's not a lot of text that we've looked at this morning, but in these brief five verses, uh, there's quite a bit that Jesus wants us to understand. In these uh, these, uh, very brief five verses, Jesus points to both of these two truths, and we can see the impact on the hearers. Now remember that the truth of God, the impact on hearers is not always the same. It's just like it's been well said. The same, the same sun uh, that hardens the clay does what? Softens the wax. So the impact, even though it's the same heat of the sun, it doesn't have the same impact on everybody. Because some people, like Pharaoh, when he had God's truth in his ears, what did he do to it? He covered up his, well, he basically covered his ears, hardened his heart. The children of Israel, they were listening. They were soft to it. But Luke here, he records that once Jesus had given the parable that we looked at last week of the unjust steward, once he had finished that parable, he had finished speaking, after he had challenged his disciples to love and to serve God the way much of the world loves and serves material wealth, And after he had concluded that by saying that you can't serve God and money, after he had concluded that, if you're here with us last week, after he finished those statements, a certain group of men were feeling a bit bothered, convicted, not real happy with Jesus' remarks. And these were the Pharisees. You've, You've heard their names many times. They were scholars of the law. They were those that actually maintained the integrity of the law. At least that was their stated goal. They knew the law. They studied the law, the scriptures, the Tanakh, Genesis through Malachi. And Luke tells us, though, why they... He tells us precisely why they were so worked up and so agitated when Jesus had just finished sharing this parable, the unjust steward, and him confronting the love of money. Why? Why were they so worked up? Why were they bothered? Well, they were lovers of money. Which means what? Well, it means that they were not lovers of God. As Jesus said in verse 13, you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. It's kind of like saying, 
I'm an atheist and I'm a born-again Christian. Right? Those are not congruent. Now, we'll come back to Luke's emphatic assertion of their affection for money. Notice, you know, it, that, if you look in your Bibles, that's not Jesus' words. That's black letter. That's Luke's commentary. And Luke says, now the Pharisees were your lovers of money. Luke's just kind of, he, uh, the Holy Spirit gives him the exact words to write down to Jesus, but he also, the Holy Spirit, uses Luke's understanding of the times and the people and the audience, and Luke writes down, for they were lovers of money. Obviously, that's Luke's observation. It's a true observation, but it still comes from the Holy Spirit. All Scripture is God-breathed. But we'll come back to his assertion and the affection for money that he speaks of. But he also says that they derided Christ. He said to them, verse, uh, sorry, verse 14, and they derided him. This means to scoff or to sneer, to scoff at, to make fun of, to make light of. The Greek connotation is also to turn up the nose. To turn up the nose, say, we are higher than you are. You're some peasant from Galilee. Don't know what you're talking about. We're the keepers of the law. We're the owners of the law. Remember back in the 15th chapter, they had complained against Christ. They whined about his ministry, complained about it, didn't like it. Constantly in their words, in their attitudes, and their body language. You can learn a lot from people from body language too, can't you? They could be found mocking, belittling, trying to discredit, attempting to ostracize Jesus. And oh, by the way, Jesus lets us know that when we follow him, people will do this to us as well. Some of our brothers and sisters are reaping this in a tremendous amount, uh, more than we are experiencing. But to some extent, you'll have people do the same, maybe behind your back, sometimes people uh, to you, because Jesus doesn't really make everyone feel real warm and fuzzy. If they didn't accept him and his teaching, though, they didn't want anyone else to accept him and his teaching either. They not only were themselves resistant to what Jesus had to say, but they wanted everyone else to resist what he had to say. Now, that really wasn't working because multitudes were following Jesus anyway. And even if other people didn't want you to receive Christ, many of you have anyway. Amen? And I did as well. And I know there were people that didn't want me to follow Christ. My, my, my friends were like, what are you doing? We're enjoying life. I'm like, you are. I actually am tired of this. But how does Jesus respond in this specific instance? How does he respond to their resistance, their rebellion, their attitude towards him, their deriding him. Well, he first points to their continual effort. They have a continual effort to be accepted by people, to be accepted by men, to be revered, to be well thought of by those around him. He says in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men. God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Well, isn't that the truth? 
You watch Hollywood's award shows or the music industry's award shows, what is highly accepted, and I mean absolutely applauded. They give courage awards to, they give lifetime achievement awards to, and you see, and you're thinking, how is this person, I mean, I, I, I know that God created them, I, I want them to be saved, but I'm having a hard time figuring out how they've contributed to the betterment of anybody. Uh, yes, I've been, unless you call being entertained the betterment, I mean, but, but we have people that are doing just unbelievable, selfless, sacrificial work on planet Earth, especially those that are doing it in the name of Christ, and no one even knows who they are. But what's highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. Because what's highly esteemed among men is almost always lifting up the glory and pride of mankind as if they've done something incredible. And often, not only are they not doing anything of great value, but it's even wickedness and sin and things that God despises. You know, you, you see that, again, the industry that comes out of Hollywood, and it might be a movie that it might have used God's name in vain 50 times, and it wins an Academy Award. It's not winning an Academy Award to God. It's an abomination to him. But I want to look at two things that Jesus addresses with these two immovable truths. If you're taking notes, we'll look at two things. The first is the law exposes, and the second is the gospel rescues. Isn't that great? The law exposes, and the gospel rescues. See, God, even though God doesn't look at you know, uh, the Emmys and the Grammys and the Country Music Awards and all that stuff, he doesn't look at down from heaven and he's applauding saying, this is the most amazing stuff I've ever seen. You, you folks are really turning the world upside down in a great way. That's not a, even though God doesn't do that, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Even those that are in love with money, fame, popularity, power, success, you have it. Whether it's political people, whether it's entertainment people, business people, God wants all of them to come to know him as Lord and Savior. But there's two immovable truths that will play a role in everyone, whether they recognize it or not, and that's the law and the gospel. And Jesus addresses both of them here. Let's look first at the law that exposes. So he says you're, you, you justify yourselves before men, but of course you can't justify yourself before God. God knows your heart. And the Bible says that someday we'll even be judged even the secret thoughts that no one else knew we ever had. That's a scary thought, isn't it? That's why you really want to have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, not your judge. But he is a judge, and he will judge the world in righteousness. And that's why the Holy Spirit was sent, is to convict the world of what? The judgment to come. There is a judgment coming. Whether the Pharisees recognize, of course, they do believe there's a judgment to come. They think it's going to come on all the bad people. Don't realize that they're in the bad people. And so are the rest of us. We're all bad in the sense that there is none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is what the law exposes. In Romans 5.18, it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in, listen to this word, condemnation. 
Nobody wants to be condemned, do they? Nobody wants to be... Uh, I was uh, watching um, a while back one of these... Um, uh, because we go into the... Uh, we go into the incarcerated units over uh, Bon Air. I'll sometimes watch these prison things. Like I, I'll watch them and I'm like, wow. The depravity that falls into mankind when people just resist the grace of God, it, it's, un, it's unbelievable. Well, what happens when some of, the, uh, some of the prisons in the United States, when someone ends up on death row, they actually, some of them, they actually have little signs that says, Condemned condemned. Well, according to Romans 5.18, we're all condemned because of one man's sin and one man's offense. Now, who was that? All the way back in Genesis, when Adam and Eve, and although the Bible puts the actual sin responsibility more on Adam, through one man's sin, Adam, through his sin, we all became sinners. Even that cute little adorable child you have, or you once were, all become sinners. All are under the condemnation. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. The world was under condemnation already when he came. He actually came to liberate from condemnation. We already were under a death sentence. So uh, if you could look at us at the soul level, anyone that's not saved would have a little sign hanging over them that would say, condemned. It would be invisible to us, but visible to God. And I'm saying that as a word picture. There's, not, there's no scripture that says there is that t- connotation. But I'm saying that God sees the world, and he sees that the world is condemned. We're actually going to look at the second half of that verse, Romans 5.18, uh, when we look at the gospel rescues. But again, the verse, Therefore, as one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Because of sin, all are condemned, including the Pharisees, and including... The tax collectors and the harlots and the robbers and the thieves and all the other people that were in the presence of Jesus when he went through village to village, all of them were under condemnation. The high and mighty, the rich, the lowly, the diseased, the healthy, everybody was under the same condemnation, whether they recognized it or not. The law is present whether we're aware of it or not. It's always present. If someone has no idea that the law exists, it doesn't mean that the law doesn't exist. You don't have to understand gravity to know it exists. You'll understand it soon enough if you fall out of something, right? If we were, take this example. If you're driving in your car and you take longer than you think to stare at your phone or you're looking for something in the front seat, you ever done this? You ever spilled something you're trying your best to get it back in the cup holder or something? Only takes a split second to not see something. Or you're turning around to say something to the kids that you've probably said a million times. And you roll through a stop sign that you didn't see. We've still violated the law whether we saw the sign, knew the sign was there, didn't know the sign was there. It doesn't matter. And if a police officer was sitting opposite where you're at, and pulls you over, you can tell all day long, I was looking for my phone, I spilled it, it doesn't matter. 
You had a responsibility. We violated the law whether we saw... I never saw the sign. And if I didn't see the sign, the sign effectively doesn't exist. No, the signs still exist. The law is in place whether we recognize it or not. We'll still be guilty of it. And so this, this backdrop of the law presides over humanity. God's law is in effect whether people reject it. It says, oh, I don't believe in the Bible. Well, stop sign's still there. I don't believe in Jesus. Stop sign's still there. Sun and moon are still there. Doesn't matter whether we accept it, reject it. God's not asking, hey, do you believe this? And if you believe it, I'll enforce it. But if you don't believe it, then I won't. No, it's, it's going to be enforced regardless. And the way that we understand this is death comes to everybody. No one escapes death, right? Because, because of sin and because of the law, death has come to all men and women. Now, Jesus comes along. And he enters into humanity. And he keeps the law. And he doesn't have a single infraction. In Matthew 5, 17, he says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. Matter of fact, uh, again, the Jewish connotation, the Hebrew connotation of fulfill, if you've been, I've shared this before, uh, when Jesus fulfilled the law, it'd be kind of like, if you have a glass that's half full, he fills it up to the top. It was already pure, fresh. It was already in there, in the glass. But Jesus actually completes it. That makes sense? He fills it up all the way. He completes it. Now, in one sense, the law is already complete. But in another sense, Jesus is the completion of it. But he's also not just the completion of it. He is the exact identical replication. So it was pure water. He's pure water with the pure water. They're the same elements. There's no difference. He fills it. He completes it. And he keeps the law to perfection. He not only fulfills the measure of the law, it's holiness and it's purity. That's what the law really is. It actually represents the holiness of God. Has God ever lied? No. Has he ever stolen anything? No. Is he guilty of anything in that list? No. He's pure and holy, so the law is pure and holy, and it actually is a righteous standard that when you put it next to us, shows us where we're at. It's been well said, sheep look nice and white until fresh fallen snow is beside them, right? And you see it, the law is that, it has that effect. It's that clean snow next to our lives. But Jesus, he would still look just as white next to the clean fallen snow, because he's equal to the law. He's kept it to perfection. But he not only kept it, he was the personification of the law. Does that make sense? He was the personification of the law in physical form. They actually have the law in their midst in a physical body. The Lord Jesus' body. The law is now alive in their presence. It's not just pages on a scroll. Jesus literally is the law in their presence. One of his names is lawgiver. You ever heard that? Lawgiver. It's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. speaks that uh, the law would come through Judah. Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, he'd come through Judah. He would have to be the sacrificial lamb. But one of his names 
is lawgiver. It's also mentioned in the Psalms. Listen to Isaiah 33.10. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, he will save us. Jesus is the lawgiver. James mentions it as well. The lawgiver is the one that will also judge. He's the only one fulfilling the law. He's the one who created the law. He's the one who gave the law through Moses. And he's in the presence of a group of men who are the supposed experts of the law. Well, you talk about running into an immovable pillar. They're supposed to be the experts of the law, but they're standing next to Jesus, who's the personification of it, created it, gave it, and he knows exactly what's in their hearts. The Pharisees, they knew the law intellectually. Intellectually. I'm amazed sometimes when I watch... When I watch um, you ever seen the politicians spin people? They are unbelievable. If I was unsaved, I think I could do that job. My wife's told me that many times. <laughs> I, had, I, had, I had a gift before I got saved of, of helping you understand that what I was saying was true, whether, it, whether I believed it or not. And you, when you watch these spin people, they have an in, they're, they're, they're brilliant. They have an intellectual understanding of the topic, of the issue, of the law, and boy, do they know how to parse words. And they can hopscotch around everything. You're like, how would they get out of this question? They do. But you can't do that with God. You can intellectually know something and, and wrap people around the axle with your understanding of things, but God still, the law is still as clear as a red stop sign. They intellectually knew it. They knew how to parse words. They knew how to present themselves in a manner that made it appear that they were keepers of law. Made it appear that they were keepers of the law. Jesus was constantly confronting this. Remember the one that they wanted to stone the woman? Jesus gets down and starts writing on the ground. We have no idea what he wrote, but I'm sure it didn't sit well because everybody vanished. Right? They made themselves appear. They were keepers of the law. And on top of that, not only were they good with their words, not only did they actually know the law, not only were they more educated than most of the common people of the day, they held the religious power. They were also connected to political power. And they had authority. And they used that power and authority that they held to add to the law that were burdens that people couldn't keep. And they manipulated the law for their own favor. They manipulated the law to take care of themselves, to put themselves in a better light. They wanted the best seats at the marketplace, Jesus said. They wanted to be called up on stage and given Lifetime Achievement Awards. They wanted to be revered. They, weren't, were, they, would, they really didn't care about God saying, well done, and good and faithful servant. They wanted everyone else's approval. Now understand there are actually two kinds of law keepers. Two kinds of law keepers. There's those that are sincerely trying to keep the law, and they become frustrated at their inability to do so. There's that kind. Matter of fact, if you, I hope you're able to come. Clear your calendars. 
to be with us Sunday night, 7 o'clock, when we have Adams Road here, former LDS missionaries, former Mormon missionaries, and you will hear their testimony, and they're going to sing some great music they've written. You will hear their testimony as how they tried to be perfect. They tried to be sinless. They tried to be righteous. And they were laden with guilt and shame. So there are people, there are people that have, Jesus liberated many people that were truly trying to keep the law, and they became frustrated realizing, I'm never going to lie again, I'm never going to lie again, I'm never going to lie again, I'm never going to lie again. They walked through the door, where were you? Uh, I was at the grocery store. <laughs> Boom, they've already lied. And we've all had this happen, right? I'm never going to do this again. That's the last time I'm going to be mean to someone. That is the last time I'm going to be mean. What are you doing? Within 10 minutes. Keeping the law, there's people that really, they're law keepers, but they become frustrated. And they're great candidates for salvation, right? Because they really are trying to keep the law. Then you have the law keepers that are pretending to keep it. This is the Pharisees. Pretending to keep it so they can be revered, they can be looked up to, they can be given power, they can be given prestige, position, financial perks. And along comes Jesus, who is the physical Ten Commandments in their presence. He's like a neon sign to their conscience. It's not sitting well. He's the very law in their midst. He's like a ruler. I'm talking about a measurement ruler, 12 inches now. He's like a ruler or a tape measure or a level. If you were supposed to cut a board three feet and you miss it by two inches, the tape measure will not lie. Hey, this tape measure is all messed up. Well, we've been using it for 15 years in this house. What do you mean it's messed up? You cut it two inches short. It'll reveal the mistake. If we hang a picture, and to the eye it looks level, you put the level on it, not level. Yeah, it looks level. Well, actually, all your pictures are on level. That's why it looks level, right? <laughs> you ever had that happen, right? You realize, that, well, the reason it looks level is nothing's level here. <laughs> the law is a good way of doing that. It shows that nothing is level. People's lives. Jesus, who knows the thoughts of men, he uses the law to illustrate use the law to illustrate how far they are from the holiness that they profess. They profess a holiness, but they're far way off, they're far, far, far from what they profess. And he used the law to point out, I'll give you three things that are pointed out here. Number one, the first one, actually, John, I'm sorry, Luke actually points out that they were lovers of money. Now, Luke points it out, but Jesus was the one that shined the flashlight on it. Does this make sense? It was when he told the previous parable. When he told the parable, he knew who in the audience would recognize, we love money. Is, is he, hold on, is he talking about us? Right? Because this sounds a lot like my mind, you know? So Luke's, Luke makes clear, number one, they were lovers of money. Now, how does the law have to do with that? Well, this refers to being idolatrous. Commandments 1 and 2 of the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Him only, right? 1 and 2. Commandments 1 and 2. Lovers of money. Also, commandment number 10. Thou shalt not covet. Always lusting for more. Always wanting more. Second was pride. 
They wanted to be justified before men. They wanted a great standing with men. The second uh, violation of the law here is pride. In John 12, 43, it says of the Pharisees, they love the praises of men. Well, this violates commandment one and two again because when you actually love to be worshipped, you're taking the place of God being worshipped. So this violates commandment one and two and you have adultery once again. It's a double down on adultery here. It's also violating the eighth commandment because this is a form of self-worship. You know, when you see people that are self-absorbed or we see it in our own selves, we are participating in self-worship at that moment. True? And we need to like, quickly say, Lord, I'm sorry, and get it out. Let him get it out. But they not only have the self-worship, they not only have idolatry, but they also would be guilty of stealing here. Stealing glory from God. That's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. And then we have lying. Because they pretend to be one thing to people, which is a lie, but they're something else. So that violates the Ninth Commandment. Lying. False intentions. And then Jesus, and uh, you, might, you might say, what, what, is this, what is this verse about divorce thrown in here? Where did this come from? Now, he, in uh, the other Gospels, we see he teaches more in depth on this, God's design of marriage, God's uh, disdain for divorce. Well, the Pharisees, they actually had taught that because Moses had given a certificate divorce, that anybody could divorce, no big deal, especially you men, you have a good reason to get rid of your wives, you can divorce her because Moses said you could do it. Moses never said they could do that. Moses, because of the hardness of their hearts, finally said, fine, you want to live opposed to God? Go ahead and live opposed to God. Here's your certificate of divorce. That was kind of the essence. And they were teaching it as if, hey, if you're not happy in your marriage, if you don't like it, write a, we'll give you a certificate of divorce. In other words, they were encouraging adultery, is what Jesus is saying. So they were guilty here of violating the seventh commandment, condoning adultery. And so they, in the presence of everyone else there, they're the supposed experts of the law, but Jesus uses these things, and no doubt they understood the law implications of what he was talking about. Because he's like, you know and I know what you teach, what you believe, what you say, but the law condemns you. There's four things that the law of God does. Write these down. Four things that the law of God does. Number one, it condemns. My pastor in Charlotte used to always say, you can't know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. The law does condemn. People have to know that there's a death penalty called hell that's on every one of us. The law condemns. The law shows us that we're unrighteous. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that, the mouth, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Every mouth stopped, all become guilty before God. Because we are guilty. The law condemns. The law says, no, no. Doesn't matter if you didn't see the stop sign. You're guilty of transgressing the law. And you can't, you can't say anything. It stops every mouth. Number two, the law convicts. It exposes who we really are, our deepest thoughts, the deepest intents of our heart. Now, God can do that from heaven, 
but his law does it as well. It exposes who we really are. Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Because of the law, we have the knowledge of sin. The law convicts us of sin. The law says that is stealing. That is covetousness. That is adultery. That is murder. It convicts the mind. It convicts the heart. Number three, so number one, it condemns. Number two, it convicts. Number three, it chastens. The law chastens. It corrects our thinking. It causes us to listen to the love and wisdom of God. It causes us to proverbially come to our senses. The law chastens. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Well, God so loved the what? World. The law is part of the chastening effect to get us to see you know, if a, if a horse is moving the wrong direction, the, the jockey gives a slight hit. What do you call it? You, know, you horse riders might know what I'm talking about. But anyway, and then moves back in the right direction. Paul writes in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the law chastened us to the cross, pointed us in the right direction. And then number four, it condemns, it convicts, it changes, number four, it converts. It doesn't convert by itself. The law itself does not convert. But it renders us helpless and desperate. And then the gospel becomes great news, good news, necessary news, reasonable news. Converts. Proverbs, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect converting the soul. Why? Because the law doesn't do the converting. It uses those other three elements. Condemning, convicting, chastening, and then it puts a person in the right condition for conversion. See, if a person hasn't become broken, Jesus said whoever falls on this rock will be broken, but whoever the rock falls upon will be ground into powder. The heart has to be conditioned for salvation. And the law prepares it. You know, just like a farmer prepares the field for seed, have to kind of break up the fallow ground before you can drop the seed, that's what the law does. The law says, okay, this is pretty reasonable. I was talking to a man recently, just, uh, just a few weeks ago, and he's had his leg amputated three times in the last six months. They had to keep coming farther up the leg. Now, nobody would get their leg amputated if there wasn't a really good reason. Well, he had a really good reason. If it wasn't amputated, and actually the doctors had to keep taking uh, further up they went, because if he didn't, the cardiovascular issue in the arteries would cause a rupture up in the heart area. And at that point, see, the gospel, when it comes to people, they realize, boy, if I get saved, I might not be able to do this anymore. I might lose these friends. And that seems like an unreasonable request from God. But then when you realize that Hell is on the other end, which we're going to look at in the next passage Jesus talks about, the rich man who finds himself there in hell. Then it seems very reasonable to say, you know what? I think life sounds a lot better than to have the full extension of my leg. Does that make sense? It then became a reasonable prognosis and a reasonable cure. But the gospel is greater than that because God doesn't cut anything off. He only gives life. 
And let's take a look at the gospel that rescues as we come to a close. Jesus only says one little thing about the gospel here, and it's in verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. He doesn't use the word gospel here, but it's synonymous. Kingdom of God and gospel are two synonymous terms. They can mean different things at times, but here in the context, it's, it's how we understand Scripture is the context of the verse, and in the place that it is, the kingdom of God is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of salvation. It's the only way of salvation. We were at the baseball game last night. You want to get into the game, there's only one gate. You're not allowed to climb the fence. You're not allowed to just come in, drive your car straight through, whatever. There's a gate. And Jesus is what? If you want to get to the kingdom of God, he is the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by. He's the gate. He's the entryway. And he's saying the entryway, people are pressing into, who's the entryway? Him. The crowds are pressing in to touch him because he is the kingdom itself. He's the law. He's the gospel. He's the one way in. And all the prophets until John, it takes a redemptive turn in history with John. John is the last of the, what we would consider the, uh, the pre-gospel prophets. Because all the prophets before him, they spoke of the coming judgment. They spoke in foreshadowings of Christ. But John says, no, no, no. I'm not just speaking of the foreshadowing of Christ. He said, behold the Lamb of God. He actually pointed literally to the physical person of Jesus Christ. All other prophets told about that God would send someone, Psalm 22, Psalm 23, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. Each of them prophesied about a coming Messiah, but John didn't prophesy about a coming Messiah. He pointed directly to him and could touch him and say, this is the guy you all need to hear. This is the law, the prophets, and the gospel all in one. That's why Luke said in Luke 1.17, way back at the beginning of when we started in the book, speaking of John the Baptist, that he will also go before him in the spirit and power of who? Elijah, another Old Testament prophet, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, that's in Malachi, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make a people ready and prepared for the Lord. How? Because John would preach the law that would prepare their hearts, and then once their hearts were soft, he would say, here's your answer. Those of you trying to keep the law, those of you that are trying to pretend you're keeping the law, here is the solution, the Lamb of God. The people who knew they were full of sin and they were full of failures, they fell at the feet of Jesus, didn't they? The lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, all of these people that recognized that they were full of failure. You didn't have to convince them of sinners. They're like, we know. They pressed in and they found mercy and they found grace. The Pharisees, they should have been pressing in. They should have been drinking the fresh water of grace and forgiveness. But instead, they were trying to keep people from finding it. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, God resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the humble. Andrew Murray said, pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. I mentioned Romans 5.18, the first half of the verse. 
Let me read the first half so you kind of see it together. Remember the first half. Therefore, as though through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. But listen to the second half of the verse. Same verse, Romans 5.18. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift comes to all men, resulting in justification of life. One man brought sin and death. The other man, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law, kept the law, gave the law, but also came and offered eternal life to people who had violated the law in spades, i.e. you and me. Charles Spurgeon said, people will not receive the balm of the gospel unless they know something of the wounds that sin has made. The balm of the gospel is welcomed once you realize you have a severe injury that only Jesus can heal. And that's sin, and that's the eternity separated from God in judgment. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, And you will seek me and find me when you search with all your heart. This is why people are pressing to Jesus. One villager would tell another villager, would tell another villager, I found the way we don't have to feel guilty anymore. What is it? It's who is it? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's saving people by the hundreds. We don't have to keep the law anymore. What about the Pharisees? They need him too. They just don't know it yet. Romans 8.4 says that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You and I now are considered by God, if you're saved, you are considered by God justified as if you're not violators of the law, as if we're not violators of the law, even though we certainly have violated the law. Why? Because the righteous blood of Jesus covers and is the propitiation, the solution for our sins. These are two immovable truths, aren't they? The law and the gospel. The world will never get rid of the law and the gospel. Empires have tried to stomp them both out. Kings have tried to burn Bibles. The Nazis tried to you know, burn as many Bibles as they could. Even today, ISIS and everyone trying to get rid of the Bible. But no matter what you do, the law and the gospel are still here in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Nothing that mankind can ever remove them, no more than we can remove any of the laws of science. They're here. But whether people acknowledge them or not is the question. And here's the great news, though. Anyone that acknowledges the law and the gospel and humbles themselves and bows the knee to Jesus and says, please have mercy on me. Jesus will say, I'll change you. I'll radically change you. And I'll give you eternal life. Amen? See, the gospel rescues. The law tells us we need to be rescued. The Pharisees didn't see it, although some later did. And God wants us all to see and receive his outstretched hand. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you love the world enough to show us the true condition that we're in, to show us we have a disease that can't be cured and a destiny, Lord, that can't be avoided unless we call upon the name of the Lord and you are mighty to save. And Lord, you're not willing that any should perish. You're desiring, Lord, that even those that might even deny your existence 
would humble themselves. Those that are trying to keep the law, those that are trying to be righteous would turn to you and find forgiveness and grace. As we come to a close here, I just want to ask again, I ask it almost every week, and next week, you know, we've got a powerful passage where Jesus is literally going to talk about hell. He's going to give us an eyewitness account of it. But if you're here today and you say, well, I, I, thought my, I thought my works, I thought I was a pretty good person, or I've, I've hidden pretty good who I really am, but you can't hide it from God, and your works have never been good enough, and Jesus wants you to humble yourself and say, please forgive me, cleanse me of my sins. And I know what the enemy would tell you. He would say to put it off and wait till next week or next year or better yet, in a decade. But none of us are promised next week, next year, or a decade. And the Lord says today is the day of salvation. And so as our heads are bowed, I just want to ask if there's anyone here who says, you know, I, I'm like the Pharisees. I've neither kept the law and I've kind of sewed fig leaves together like Adam and Eve did to kind of show God, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good. But the Lord wants to forgive whatever you've done, whatever your past, any guilt, any shame. But it's a simple thing to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I'm going to invite you to just stand right where you're at. We're not going to have an altar call or anything. Just stand right where you're at. And we'll just pray with you. We'll rejoice with you. There's anyone here. Don't worry about what anyone thinks. They won't, they won't be the one you're standing before at the end of your life. That'll be the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, the, everyone will meet Jesus. Everyone. There's only two ways to meet him. Either meet him with his welcoming arms or you meet him as your judge. I will meet him, and my brothers and sisters here will meet him as our Lord and our Savior and our king.